We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? Oh, I'm really good, Drew. How are you, man? You don't. Uh, that didn't sound very sincere. I'll be honest. I know. With you. I know. Do you want me to? You, let me try it again. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing okay, man. How are you? Sorry, I was. Go- I went. I aimed too high, and I think it did come off a little phony. This is real fucking beat, but uh, uh, I did it. I did a tweet, and I just. I just want to reiterate the point that, like, if someone says to me, "How are you?" Like, I automatically say fine. Like, sometimes mm-hmm. I automatically go right to fine, even if they haven't said it. They'll just be like, hello, and I'll be like, I'm fine. And then, <laughs> but, like, if someone comes to me and they go, Drew, how the hell are you? Then I'm like, oh, I feel fucking great. Now you just said that, like, it's, it's like, make it sound like you haven't seen me in, like, 20 years, and, like, you just went through a desert, and I'm the only person you wanted to see that whole time you were there, and now you see me and you're so happy. Now I'm happy. I mean, so how the hell well, are you now, Roth? I get that every Wednesday, and it, it does elevate my mood a little bit. The serotonin shortages are, uh, I would say, critical here. And if it wasn't for you greeting me enthusiastically once a week on a Zoom call, I don't know where I'd be. Well, that was true during the pandemic. I was like, oh, I get to actually like see another human being. Yeah, <laughs> even like in your little computer. like The idea of being like, I can't wait for Drew to yell at me about the Vikings for precisely 52 minutes. Yeah, and great. I don't even... I don't even have the box maximized because I have to look at the rundown document. So you're you're like you're literally two inches wide on my screen. So I'm like, oh, but there he is. And you know who else is here? It's Liz Cook, Kansas oh, nice. City food writer. Liz Cook, the legendary Liz Cook of Haterade, and a freelance food critic for the Pitch. She joins us. How are you doing, Liz? I am doing swell, which is my default response, like a vaudevillian carnival barker. You know, it's swell. Swell is a, a better word. I actually I. Asked my editor, Barry Pacheski, if I could rant against the word fine because I hate it so much. And he's like, yeah, but why? what's serious between that and like, okay or all right? And I was like, I don't know, but I just fucking hate it. And he's like, no, that's not really good enough, Drew. So Swell I, is good, I, though, because it's like it both gets the message across and also like I don't know that it's going to get followed up necessarily. Like people aren't going to be like, oh, like they're not going to like talk to you in the music man voice after that. They're just going to be like, this lady's doing okay. <laughs> that's the that's the idea, right? It just gets you from having to go into any kind of detail at all. Yep. Yeah, but it, it's like it's a bit friendlier. It could have a t- it could have like a just like a t- a tinge of irony to it, depending on how you fr- like. I'm swell, doing swell. I'm fuck everything's fucking great. Or you can be like, yeah, I'm doing swell. I'm all right. I'm so good. is it established now that all of us are doing okay? That we're at least a baseline level of okay. Yeah, which is really all you want out of a podcast. You yeah. Know, it's all right. Like, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, our <laughs> producer is Brandon Nix. I, t- <laughs> I tune into every podcast. And I'm like, man, I hope the people doing this podcast are all right and agree with each other about everything. And then I hope they <laughs> recap The Sopranos. I so. hope this podcast episode will just be titled, Drew and David are doing fine. That's yeah, right. And, and you. Yeah. And Liz yeah. is also well. That will be the headline on the, on the post when I put it on the website. <laughs> so I want to talk to you, Liz. Uh, we want to talk to you about uh, your career as a food critic. Uh, but first, we have to uh, fulfill our contract to do some obligatory sports content because we learned, Liz, uh, yesterday that you are a fan of Arsenal. You yes. in the Premier League. Are you and having so, a laugh, mate? <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about Arsenal because I follow other people who are also fans of Arsenal, and they seem perpetually exasperated and pissed off at Arsenal all the time. And I wanted to ask, 
why that is. Like, what's, what is so shitty about Arsenal that they make you want to die? Yeah, well, you, you may not know this about Arsenal, but it's actually Latin for to struggle with God. Um, this is sort of baked into our, uh, you know, our fan base. Is that um, true? You're not, like, joking? That's actually no, true? No, I'm, I'm 100% joking. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> I was like, wow, you learned something new. I was going through the roots and, like, thinking I needed to dust up on my Greek or whatever. But, yeah, that... Uh, so what is it though? I always think of them as being one of the good teams. I don't follow it very closely, but like, are they yeah. uniquely like? Are you secretly like a Mets fan just for soccer? Is that no? What well, so like, it's kind of the classic like little brother energy, and I relate to this very much as someone from the Midwest because I think like people from the Midwest have this chip on their so- sh- uh, shoulder too. Like, Arsenal is fine; they're a great team. They play beautiful football, but they were, I guess, during the Wenger years, like perpetually fourth. They were never kind of at the top of the table. And so there's always this perception that like, even though you're a team with a ton of money, you're like still on the top half of the Premier League, you're winning the FA Cup, that you're somehow the underdog. And so there's like this aggrieved characteristic that feels baked into the fan base. I like the idea that you could just gravitate to that even from many, many miles away. That like, I often feel like that when I went to school in Southern California, I was a New Jersey Nets fan uh, as a kid, which was not fun. I mean, they were bad. And I went there and I had a choice. Like, I was on a whole other side of the country. I couldn't watch the Nets if I wanted to because, the, like, the technology didn't exist. And so I could have chosen, like, the Kobe Shaq Lakers or the pre-Lamar Odom Los Angeles Clippers. And it was like, Ooh. I didn't even have a say in it. I just became a Clippers fan while I was there and watched, like, Maurice Taylor eat a large sandwich during games and stuff like that. That was just, like, the lot that I backed into because it was, like, an autonomic response to that yeah i really are they are they an annoying team presently like are there players on their end who are essential to the team but who you actively dislike and are annoyed by oh so probably the big one for me is granite jaka um he is kind of our biggest liability and like one out of every five games he'll be absolutely brilliant um and then the other four he'll just do incredibly lazy tackles get benched you know uh you know, open up penalties. So he's kind of the one that we still keep playing. And that's probably the biggest frustration I have with uh, Mikel Arteta right now is that he's relying on Granit Xhaka a lot, who I see as this like big liability. But the rest of the players, like we had a great transfer window. We had some good signings. And I feel like for once, kind of optimistic. Where are they on the table? They are not in the Champions League uh, this time around. Is that no, correct? they are not. So we missed out on that. And we are not very high up uh, in the table either, which makes our, uh, you know. Oh, you're 10th. Yeah. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Which makes our win against Tottenham feel all the sweeter, I will say. Because <laughs> they're 11th. So you got that going. Yes, for we got that going for us, which is nice. But we're, uh, yeah, we're below Brentford. It doesn't feel yeah, I was going to ask, great. can you just mm. give me some made up names? They're like, where are they relative to uh, Twirlingham? <laughs> Twirlingham. Brentford is Brentford is one of those. I over the past few years, I've I've acquired a pretty decent knowledge of who's which teams are actually in the Premier League. Because like you know, like a decade ago, I would have been like, uh, uh, Crystal Palace. The fuck is that? Like, are, are they is they do they play in a literal Crystal Crystal Palace? They don't, and they should. But I was always like Aston Villa. That's not a real name for a team. But now, like, I know them all. But Brentford, which I assume has to have been promoted recently. Yeah, I uh, think it was this year, right? That's got real uh, real silly British uh, town name energy to it, even though it's 
pretty. It should be like Brentford upon the sea or something. That would make it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything upon anything. I, I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, what about Arsenal fans? Are they annoying? I know Chelsea fans are racist and really all, all European (laughs) soccer fans are racist, but like, what is there a distinctive, uh, insufferability to Arsenal fans that no other team can replicate? I think Arsenal kind of take the cake for being like whiny bitches. Like there's just kind of this fatalistic quality that the Arsenal fans have that I find like really frustrating. Um, You know, the Wenger out chance, the Arteta outs chanted, like chance started almost as soon as he kind of took over. Um, I think it's just like the slightest inkling that things aren't going exactly the way we want. And it's just like a wholesale chaos energy. So that's something that I find super annoying. Well, as a Vikings fan, I'm utterly, utterly uh, unfamiliar with feeling that way <laughs> at all. But my team never, ever feel that way. Hey, let's talk about food uh, because you are a freelance food critic. And I want to talk about something that was in uh, your newsletter, Haterade. Uh, I believe it was last week. You referenced uh, Soleil Ho's column in the San Francisco Chronicle earlier this month about how she couldn't wait to get back to negative restaurant reviews because they went sort of on hold during the pandemic, right? Because the restaurant industry famously struggled during the pandemic uh, and, uh, you know, is struggling now because of a sea change over to, you know, it's sort of the pandemic gave a lot of corporations tacit permission to just abandon the restaurant model altogether and start operating out of ghost kitchens and not bother with anything anymore. Meanwhile, Pete Wells of the New York Times wrote a fantastic pan of 11 Madison Park this week, but noted that he does still does not give star ratings out and I assume he would have given it no stars, which would have been funny, uh, because the pandemic is still essentially ongoing. So the questions for you are, was it right for restaurant critics to sort of engage in this, I I, want to say compassionate act during the pandemic? Was it all for show? And will we get back to objective restaurant criticism anytime soon? And did it ever exist? So I have, there's four questions. For okay, yeah. yeah. Please answer them in order. <laughs> yeah. So I'll take the first one, I guess, which was, uh, right, was it right for them to stop writing negative reviews? That's the first one? Yes. Um, I think you'd have to because the restaurant industry just didn't exist the way that it had for years um, for the first right. part of the pandemic. So I think like necessarily if places are shut down, if they're suddenly switching to takeout models, if they're operating with half staff, like it's kind of ludicrous to like, you know, take the piss out of someone who's operating in that way because they don't like it any more than you do. Like, this is not them trying to, you know, do their best. They don't feel that that, that that's their best offering. Um, I guess whether, how long that grace period should be extended, I think is super regional specific. So like, you know, Soleil's column is really interesting to me because in San Francisco, they've had like way harsher pandemic restrictions that have lasted for a lot longer than in mm-hmm. Kansas City, where, you know, like six months after, you know, the pandemic started, we were back at full capacity. We could dine indoors, you know, you know, everything was off to the races. So like and it was totally safe. Yeah, totally <laughs> safe. But restaurants were going back to normal. They were operating with like full dining rooms. And so like that okay. context is super different. <laughs> so if you're operating in that context, I think it makes much more sense to like come like if restaurants are going to treat it like everything's normal then probably journalists covering them i mean they should point out the ludicrous nature of that but they should you know cover them with that same kind of critical eye i was interested because you wrote um you wrote a pretty a really really well-written review of society a new restaurant in kansas city and it was a negative review i I mean essentially And, and i thought it was fair 
But it was interesting because society, and correct me if I'm wrong, was essentially part of a restaurant collective. And so it's hard, uh, and I don't think readers quite know, or I'm not sure they're availed of this when they read any given restaurant review. Not, it's not like a guarantee. But it's hard to tell whether or not when you give a restaurant review, if you're punching up at a gigantic consortium or you're punching down at a mom and pop uh, operation. Because, you know, a lot of people, their first assumption is it's a small business. That's the only restaurant and it's their entire livelihood. And you, the food critic, if you're mean to it, you're going to fuck their lives. Yeah, no, that's 100% fair. Like it's, it's probably not dissimilar from the sports world, right? Like the punching up versus punching down question. Like you go after the places with a ton of money because they can soak it up. Like they're already right. soaking up all of the attention and all of the PR cash and all of the kind of like buzzy uh, influencer energy. So it makes much more sense to kind of take the wind out of their particular sales. I'm probably not going to write the same kind of review of like, you know, one woman who put her life savings into opening a lunch counter and she's, you know, doing the dishes and you know doing the accounting right. herself. You call these hand pulled noodles, right. you piece of shit. Yeah. That seems to be the thing with the the Wells negative reviews that wind up viral or like, you know, or not even viral. I mean, I think the ones that like make a big impression, because I don't think that like this isn't the same thing as the Guy Fieri review or whatever, like writing about how 11 Madison Park is like a little up its own ass. It's kind of like that's going to appeal to people like me that read every review of that restaurant, even though I cannot afford to go there. But like, it's not I don't know that it's going to break out of that circle of weirdos, but it seems like. Wells is most comfortable going after places that are not just in terms of like punching up, punching down versus who owns it, but that are like promising a remarkable experience at an astronomical price point and then not delivering it. And I think that that has, there's nothing retributive about it to me. It's so much as it is just sort of like a way of checking this trend. And I guess that that's like part of restaurant reviewing that I, I sort of, have never really understood because I haven't been in the scene enough. Like you have written well about like the role that sort of critics play relative to people that report on the industry itself. And you've talked about in the newsletter, like how those two things are kind of in conflict that like, if you are a critic of a restaurant and you're, and you know, like you're reviewing it as such, that's very different than like having to call them on the phone and get them on the record about like this or that trend in the industry. And I guess like, this is a broad question, but like how healthy do you feel like the world of writing about restaurants and food is right now? Like, do you feel as if it's so small and everybody is so overtaxed that there's a sense in which it's conflicted, like almost out of comprehensibility? I don't know if I would say that. I think like there's a ton of food writing and there's a ton of food media out there. Um, mm. So I think like in that sense, the scene seems super healthy, but I think like full-time positions where you can actually like take risks in the, the sense of like a Pete Wellsian type position are almost like there's made like five full-time food critics that yeah, I can like think of. If that. Yeah. That's not even hyperbole. Like right. that's like, that's, that might be an overestimate. Right. And so you're left with kind of like freelancers who are always going to be kind of making the same trade-offs that I am. Like, you know, it's really tempting to like, you know, go to all of these like free openings or media tastings when you make no money and like, can't afford to try out a bunch of spots and you can't afford to like take a big swing and miss. Um, so I think that's super unhealthy. And I think the other, this is like not super related, but the other unhealthy thing I think about the food media landscape right now is that like, it's so up its own ass. <laughs> like, 
I think like, yep. I think food writers are some of the most like intensely self-absorbed people I see in like a room of journalists, which feels like a high bar to clear. Yeah, but, seriously. It's, it's like, <laughs> yeah, but there's really... like so much meta commentary and obviously like I'm engaging in the same thing in the newsletter. So like, who the fuck am I to judge? Um, but like, I think there's this level of discourse among food writers where it feels like anymore, they're just talking to each other instead of talking to consumers or like people that are actually going out and eating at these places. So like, that's another thing that I think is a huge problem. Like the more kind of fraught this industry becomes, the more like food writers sort of band together as this like weird, you know, click that seems like they're so far removed from talking about anything that matters to anyone else. Could you be a bit more specific about that? Yeah, can you name some names? Who are who are the biggest? I was going to ask her to name names, but it doesn't even have to be. It doesn't have to be naming names. It could be like just sort of examples of specific types of discourse that has, you know, that that gets into the digestive tract and doesn't get out. Yeah, so I think like there's whole newsletters like um, Family Meal um, is one of them that's just like all about kind of aggregating and like making fun of things that food writers are saying, um, which is. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to read. Um, yeah. But and then I think like you also get into this with kind of like the cultural appropriation discourse where like some of it's really necessary and important. And then sometimes it's just like, you know, a food writer getting really mad at someone in the New York Times presenting a dish in the wrong cultural context and like that taking on a huge other life. And then I'm just thinking like, a lot of people, you know, in Kansas City have no idea what this dish is, like, let alone, you know, like, I've never heard of this. And now I'm supposed to get mad about it. It just feels kind of like, I, I don't know, that's probably, I probably sound like an old crank now, like the kids these days and they're culturally. No, you're you're with two middle-aged men. So, you know, <laughs> but I think there is something about that idea of like, a meta argument happening above and like, maybe not even like legible to the people like my mother gets all of her recipes from the New York Times pretty much new ones but I don't think that she's aware of the idea that like using sumac is considered problematic she's like we found this delightful spice and you can get it at the store and like that's just basically how she engages this stuff and I think that I mean I guess it makes sense that my mom wouldn't be a part of the you know like as just a septuagenarian who's looking for sassy new salad recipes, like she wouldn't be engaging with the sort of cultural, you know, meta element of it. But I don't know. I guess it's sort of disappointing, I guess, to hear that like that part of it is such a big part of the discourse. Cause I guess like I like reading about restaurants and I like reading recipes and stuff like that. Cause I like eating a lot and I feel like there, you know, there should be joy in that like that should be centered in it just because that seems like the kind of the point of the whole thing not to completely uh, you know ignore the politics of it but that's why people go to restaurants in the first place is that it's like it's more fun than cooking and you get to eat stuff you don't know how to make like yeah and i think like that's actually a better entry point for a lot of like the broader cultural critiques and political arguments you want to make like you can bring people in with that kind of universality and commonality and kind of joy and then you know stretch them a little bit further but sometimes it feels like we're like just shouting at a at a public that you know is so far removed from the discourse that we're having that like we need to have like long catch-up conversations to get them to the point where they'll understand what we're upset about yeah. the other thing yeah. is that um a lot of this uh you know a lot of this discourse i i'm abusing that word and I, i'm sorry about that but it runs parallel to and i think we talked to pete wells about this when we had him on 
runs parallel to, but never intersects with, or rarely intersects with, the problems of the restaurant business itself, which have been well-documented and, and yet continually need to be documented over and over again. Uh, because I've worked in restaurant kitchens with kitchens with like abusive chefs and stuff like that. And I know of people who have also done it. And yet, uh, and yet the presentation of food criticism can sometimes elide that and, and the perception of what the restaurant is that they're, the people are reviewing. Like, for example, this goes out of, uh, this goes out of uh, the realm of abuse, but like Wells's review of Peter Luger, like he took a shit on it because they treat their customers like shit. Right. And so to that end, it doesn't really matter what size that business is. If they're doing their job wrong or poorly, it behooves the person covering them to say they're doing a shit job of it. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, and that's, that's what gets you back to like, okay, why are we kind of taking, why are the biggest swings at like the Peter Lugers at the 11 Madison park? And it's in part because like, this is an experience that's so exclusive, that's so difficult to access for so many people. And if you're doing what you think is consumer oriented criticism, you have to think like, okay, you know, maybe it's mostly like Wall Street assholes who are going to this place, but there's probably also a couple who like went to New York and saved up. And this is like their dream to eat at 11 Madison Park, this famous restaurant. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe the only like splurge they're going to make all year. So like, is this a sensible thing? Like, and it's what you said, Drew, if you're treating your customers like shit, yeah, you got to point that out. And that's like a different equation than like the mom and pop spot. If you're only out 12 bucks, it's a little bit different. Yeah, I I, I think that's... That's true. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, for Haterade, uh, you bought a Honda mouse tape uh, that prevents mice from chewing through wires, and you licked it uh, to make sure, and you actually, you wrapped it around a cocktail glass as well, and you said it didn't taste good, you wouldn't recommend tasting it, but since you wrote that post, have you gotten a hankering to taste mouse tape again? Like, like have I become part mouse? Like, is this transformation no. happening? <laughs> well, they, they no, hate no, it. No. Did you, you like you ever you ever eat something and you're like oh I don't like it but then like a day later you're like kind of curious you're like mm, kind of it was interesting didn't bore me Look, would I'm, mouse tape fall into that category yeah I'm still sold on the potential of mouse tape I'll say I will say like the, the right. actual experience of the mouse tape was a letdown not because it tasted bad just because it didn't taste like that much like I wanted a bloody mary rim that had a little bit extra piquancy. <laughs> And I'm I'm a little bit skeptical that this heat on this tape is actually deterring any rodents. So we'll, we'll yeah, see. To get to get everybody up to speed, like basically this is you had you had mice living in your engine as one does. That was a problem that we had in Maine this summer. It's a fucking bummer. There's just no way to resolve it that isn't depressing and gross. But the the tape itself that you're supposed to put in there that makes the mice not gnaw on your shit is like, it's just basically hot sauce, right? Like you said, it's just like capsaicin is the active ingredient in it. Yeah, it's just pure capsaicin extract that's coated on this tape. Uh, But it's a pretty mild dose, I would say. I would think that it might be nice to do it in other flavors. I don't know that the mice would like it, but I think for people that are looking to, to jazz up a cocktail night at home, that maybe it would be good to get one that, you know, had a sort of a maybe salt would be nice if you wanted to have a margarita or something like that. I've done a I've done a Hidden Valley Ranch Powder uh, cocktail rim. I feel like there's a lot of opportunities if Honda wants to, you know, get me on the phone. I think was the it good? last time I... I got sick from drinking was a friend who's now a restaurant chef was really into just like messing around with like stoner food for a long time. And he had a party where he was serving what he called Dorita Ritas, which were margaritas made with just like stuff from the store. But the rim of the 
glass was crushed up Cool Ranch Doritos that he had gotten to adhere to it. Mm -hmm. And I drank it during the day on a hot day outside, and then I had 99 bananas, which is a banana liqueur that I think is primarily used as a disinfectant uh, or as punishment, I guess, in certain contexts. And I not only was I mad because I got sick from drinking, this was like, you know, 15 years ago, but I was also like, everything that I drank was so obviously stupid that it was all clearly trending in that direction. <laughs> that there was just no way that it could have gone that would have been good for me. And then it happened to be exactly as bad as it should have been. I guess I could have learned a lesson from that, but it took me like another five years to figure it out. That's like, that's what I'm all about. I mean, I made uh, Hidden Valley Ranch popsicles just to see what the experience oh would be. God. So, you know, what is the, how was can it? You break down the visual on that because I'm, I'm not loving it in my mind's eye. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, it's in a newsletter. I, t- I did take a picture so you can look it up after the fact. Um, but it's, it's a creamy, opaque white popsicle. It looks exactly <laughs> the way that you would expect. But then I did dress it up a little bit by like dipping it um, in the ranch powder. So you get kind of like that nice candied effect. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, that's uh, nice is exactly the word that popped into my head when you described dipping a ranch dressing popsicle into ranch dressing powder. I, feel I like- wonder if there's ranch flavored vodka. Like, I, I bet someone has, because I, my most famous, well, I shouldn't say famous in my mind, the, the worst time I got sick from drinking was when I went to a Halloween party and there was an ice luge and they had smoked salmon flavored vodka. And I was oh. like, this is delicious. It tastes just like smoked salmon because I was, I was really shit-faced. And then I got even more shit-faced. And then the next morning I was like, ah, like thinking about it. Like <laughs> I thought about what I drank. And even today I'm like, mm, smoked oh, salmon flavored no. vodka is like, it's, I'm willing to humor it. Like it might work, but I don't feel like at any volume it's going to do anything <laughs> good for you. Probably not. No, no, no. Maybe freshen your breath. Hey, let's uh, let's take a quick break with uh, Liz Cook and come back and we'll play some games and open up the fun bag. We'll be right back. We're back. We're back. We're going to play some games with Liz Cook of the pitch. Liz, uh, would you like to remember a guy? Every week we remember a guy in sports. And I, I had one guy I was going to remember, but it was a baseball guy. And for you, we have a special Arsenal guy to remember this week. Would you like to remember a guy? I would love to remember a guy. How about Thierry Henry? Do you remember Thierry Henry? Just the best guy to remember, honestly. Uh, does he still yeah. play for Arsenal? He was a player for Arsenal. He is now No, a, no, because he's, he's now he still a fan. Play. He is now sitting in the stands and hopefully one oh. day will coach us. <laughs> He was Aura. also a New York, New Jersey Red Bull, I believe, for a while. At the I end, he, think that's right. And I remember he really liked New York. That The one time I got to see him play in real life was Steve Nash used to have this like charity soccer game on the Lower East Side that was a really bizarre collection of like, like Mark Stein played in it, the NBA writer, but also the time that I saw it. It was just in Sarah D. Roosevelt Park, like so not a glamorous Lower East Side Park. And they were playing on an outdoor, like AstroTurf soccer pitch. And it was Steve Nash, Chris Bosch, Baron Davis, and then also like Thierry Henry uh, played in that. And there's another guy, Robbie something, who was like a big deal British player, white dude. And they were, it was great fun to watch. Like Henry was the single best. Like, it's as close as I've ever been to an absolute master doing this stuff. 
And I remember him leaving and he was like sort of lightly mobbed. But then like after a few more steps, he was just an ordinary dude walking down like Stanton, which I think really appealed to him. Like he always talked about how much he liked New York. And I think some of it is that he wasn't getting yelled at the way that he might have when he lived in London. Well, Thierry Henry is a perfect guy for this uh, segment because we are already like remembering him and lionizing him as though he were long deceased. Like there is already a right. statue of him outside of Emirates Stadium, which is there really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I think every uh, every soccer luminary who comes over to MLS is very happy about it and says very nice things because the standard is so much lower. Like us American fans were like, oh my fucking God, like. Thierry Henry's on like, our team. With both feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like when Wayne Rooney came to DC United, I was like, that's bitching. He was like 58 years old and had no hair. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Wayne Rooney, man, that is fucking kick ass. And they get like, you know, they get some extra dough and everybody's nice to him. So it's like a perfect little, it's like a perfect little Dino Mall for a career just to ease into retirement by making a little extra money and have Americans who know nothing just say really nice shit about you. It's great. Yeah. I mean, that was the David Beckham route with the LA Galaxy, right? It was a thousand percent. He was the pioneer of the goddamn. I mean, he was going to move to LA anyway. You can't, like, eventually everybody that is that hot and also tattooed will live in Los Angeles. It's just like, it's cool that he was able to leverage a couple of years of of physical activity out of it. Do you want to play Dead or Canceled, Liz Cook? You ready to play Dead or Canceled? I would love to. All right. So I'm going to give you the name of a person. You got to tell me whether they're dead or canceled. Can you do that? Okay. Just any person? Well, no, I'm going to give you the name. of. Oh, a, you're going to give me the name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Someone yeah. No, no, no. You, you don't. Okay. You, good, good, good. I'm not going to make you do the work. All right. Is this person dead or canceled? Actor Walter Matthau. I can't believe I just botched <laughs> Walter Matthau's name. Walter Matthau. Is he dead or canceled? I mean, he's got to be dead, right? He is yes. dead. Okay. Yes, of course. Fabulous actor. Wonderful actor. But yes, he is dead. I'm glad he didn't up. live to be canceled, I guess I should say. Because yeah. it could have happened. Yeah. Like, I feel like he was the guy that, uh, you know. Like, I bet if you got him going on, on horse racing and how it's changed, you'd get a lot of really spicy opinions. Uh, let's move on to the fun bag and open up the fun bag. I got Andy more math writes stuff. in. I got another it, five minutes on math out, Drew. Oh, all right. You want to keep going? No, I don't. Just I don't do, the, do the type five, David. It's fine. <laughs> I'm, you know, a, I'm of the generation. Can you one, two, three fans out there? I see my man <laughs> laughing because he knows. <laughs> That's I'm it. of the generation where I recognize him most from, like, grumpy old men, which is really not how you ought to remember Walter Matthau, but that's like, that was like one of the first like preeminent movies I saw him in. I'm like, oh, that's the guy from Grumpy Old Men. I'm sure his family would be like, he was in other movies too, Drew. Like, that were like an superior. Academy Award winner. Yeah. Did more than Ice Fish with Jack Lemon. Well, there's like a generation of kids who will only remember Clint Eastwood for yelling at that chair. So I feel like it's always, the, the timeline's <laughs> yeah. always shifting. That's Very a true. thousand percent true. I was like, I'm still, I'm still dying at the name of the movie Cry Macho. Like, I'm sure. I'm sure the context of it fits with the movie, but it's called Cry Macho, and that's such a fucking stupid name for it's, a movie starring a 91-year-old man. I, I don't know anything about this movie, but I assume it's like trying to do a fun new take on like crying uncle when you're beating someone up and like trying to spin that into a, a macho setting. Sort of. So the one thing I could tell you from the little bit that I've read about it is that macho is a chicken. Macho is yes. a fighting rooster uh, and like... I guess also, you know, the movie is about machismo. But that's another, that adds a nice little element to me. As someone who does not plan on seeing the movie, I feel like knowing that it's uh, directed by and starring a 91-year-old man 
who is uh, rescuing a child and a fighting cock from Mexico. Like, that's cool. Like, I feel like I like that movie as much knowing that as I would uh, if I ever saw it. Uh, let's open up the fun bag. And this is from Bob. Bob writes in, The Blue Angels, the Navy flight squadron that tours the country performing air shows and the neocon fluff boys of a- aviation, they're bullshit, right? A gross misuse of our tax dollars costing our taxpayers a sweet $40 million a year, not to mention each plane costs around $50 million. I brought this up at a party and was promptly branded a jihadi by the rest of the NIMBY fucks I associate with. But I think there's more than just the reasons above to cancel this shit and put that money into just about anything else. Liz Cook, do you like the Blue Angels or do you think they're bullshit? Oh, man, this is like the like, of course, if you bring up at a party like, you know, the really cool planes that make loud noises and go very fast are bad. Actually, people are going to get mad at you. Like <laughs> this is uh, this is not a, not that hard to suss out. Um I okay, so I have to disagree, and I have to disclose here that I recently Ooh. went up in an air show plane for a piece I wrote, so I have a little bit of skin in the game. Oh, Whoa. Wow. What type of plane was it? Uh, it was a, a sky typer. It was like a World War One era plane that just like poots out smoke and types things. They actually got in a lot of trouble because they are also so it's, it's sponsored by Geico. These this fleet of sky typers, and they got in some mm-hmm. trouble because they were taking just sky typing for hire. You know, like proposals, things like that, spelling out stuff, sure. and uh, they took on a contract where they put up uh, anti-Armenian genocide propaganda without realizing it. <laughs> Wait, does that mean they were for the recognition of the like, Armenian uh, genocide? Like denying it. Like they put up oh, pro- propaganda denying Armenian. the Armenian genocide. Yeah. My wife is Armenian, so I'm very angry about that. Though. Yes. That's very bad. Yeah. That like is, that. I mean, whatever. Everything feels like a, a background detail in a lesser Don DeLillo novel now, like literally every story that I read. But that one especially, the idea of getting busted for pro-genocide skywriting and being like, hey, man, it was just just a job. I just write what they give me. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't bring this up with the person who was flying me because I didn't, you know, want to get tossed out of the plane. But his name, his call sign was Gooch, which I also thought was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, this is the making Goocher. me reconsider a lot of things. How was the flight? Did, did, did it make you ill? No, it was amazing. I mean, it wasn't a Blue Angel flight. I mean, this is like a World War One air, aircraft, so it's not going anywhere near that fast. But There's no barrel rolls involved? There's no barrel rolls, <laughs> but they did some maneuvers. And, like, you can just pull the canopy back, and you're just out there exposed to the wind, baby. Like, there's uh, there's no roof. It was a ton of fun. Ooh. And I also was there, like, watching the air show while the Blue Angels took off. And, like... Yes, I understand all of the arguments. Terrible for climate change. But, like, there's so much. Like, this is so far down the list of things we need to fix, I think, that I can't be that arsed. Yeah. Uh, I I kind of expected it to be more expensive. Like, I thought that the, especially given how much money we spend on, like, fighter jets that can only crash. Like, that's the only (laughs) function that they know how to do properly. Like, it's surprising that, you know, like, 40 or 50 million dollars, like, the Mets are going to spend more than that this offseason on a guy who's going to make 10 starts and then get hurt. And they get arrested. It it honestly seems like a pretty good deal if you can get, like, a fighter jet and a gooch to fly it. That's pretty tight. I, uh, I'm torn here because... I was ta- my grandma took me to a Blue Angel show when I was like seven or something. She really sold it. I, I was like, oh, I'm going to see the Jets and all that stuff. And they're so fucking loud. I like, my ears hurt. I was like crying. I was very upset. And I didn't like the planes at all. And I asked to be taken away from the show. So I hated the Blue Angels like for the bulk of my childhood until, until Van Halen released the Dreams video. 
that's Did nothing not but footage of the Blue Angels <laughs> flying. And it's <laughs> a fantastic video. Yeah. And a truly inspiring song. And so, I'm see, I'm torn here. If without the Blue Angels, we would not have had the Dreams video. And that's, what, $56 million? I mean, it's 10 planes in it, so $560 million, but for a most triumphant video. And so I, I, don't, know, I don't know how I feel about it. If you had given me an infinite amount of time to guess how Drew was going to finish the sentence that included, I was opposed to the Blue Angels until <laughs> it never would have... I, the idea that Van Hagar could figure into that response would never have occurred to me. My hat is off to you, sir. I definitely like would sing along to Dreams like in the car and like get to the end, like when he sings "That's What Love Is Made Of." Like I would feel that. Like I would get a little, <laughs> I would get a little, a little misty. Hey, uh, Matt writes in. This is a good question for you, Liz Cook. My coworkers and I are discussing sports movies, and the topic of good soccer movies came up. As in, are there any? I remember Ladybugs with Rodney Dangerfield and Mean Machine with Vinnie Jones, but those are both somewhere between campy and straight up bad. One co-worker said there are probably some good soccer films in Spanish-language cinema, so now the debate is if those movies would translate to English well. We still think that Nike commercial Guy Ritchie made is the best option on the table. Your verdict. Liz Cook, are there any good soccer movies? Man, I don't know if I'm the right person for this question because I'm trying to think of like good soccer movies, and the only one that's coming to mind is Bend It Like Beckham, which I don't Same think for is. Me. Uh, yeah. Oh, I thought that was a good soccer movie. Yeah, that's more no. of a like getting kissed movie. No, you it's, can do it's both. A soccer. You, yeah, yeah, I mean, the best sports movies are the ones where, you know, like you can say Raging Bull is not a boxing movie and it's a character study and be correct. Like it's like the sports part. It doesn't have to end with the the big game, right? It can still be a sports movie and not end that way. I mean, we're like two years from a Ted Lasso movie, right? Oh boy, if that, if that. Although everyone, like everyone's mad at Ted Lasso. That one now. pretty fast, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I, do you watch it, Liz? I saw the first season. I haven't watched any of the second. Was the first season good? It's like it's really sweet. It's Ooh. it's something you can kind of turn your brain off and enjoy. Um, So that's what everyone that I know has said about the first season, that they all really appreciated it contextually when they were watching it because it was like a super dark time and that it was just like a a nice hang, like just like a warm televisual experience. I don't know anybody that's like going to go back and revisit it. And it does seem like you made the right choice in terms of when you bailed on it. It's been very weird because I haven't seen Ted Lasso, but just to watch the discourse on it evolve, because like at the beginning, people were like, oh, well, you know, it's based off an ad. It's not going to be good. And then everyone was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. And then now people are like, there's people who are like, oh, my God, it fucking sucks. And then people who talk about it, like, if you didn't know it was a show, you would think they were talking about a fucking seminar or something like that. Like, I don't know what the hell's going on with people who, like, stand it. So this is, a, this is something I'm actually very worried about as someone who also still works in the corporate world is that like much of the first season at least was about like being a coach and being a manager and like inspiring people by being kind. And I know that I'm like two months away from having to sit through like a corporate leadership seminar that's like managing the lasso way. Oh, yeah. for sure that's like the real like we're way likelier to get a you know management tips of the imaginary mustachioed jason sudeikis guy than we are to get like a feature film of it but there will certainly be some sort of you know the lasso way like a book with raised text that you can get only in airports that'll that'll (laughs) happen for sure so i do think i think i think we come around i i think the answer is bend it by like beckham because it's really kind of the only soccer movie we know that isn't ladybugs 
Mean Machine or like Victory from like 1980. Well, there's one other one that I know of but have not seen called uh, The Damned United, which is adapted from a book by... Oh! It's adapted from a book by a writer that I really admire named David Peace, who wrote... He wrote the Red Riding uh, series of books and stuff, and he is fucking weird. Like, the books are, are really good but really jarring to read, like, kind of... Uh, not underpunctuated, but like it's idiosyncratically punctuated, like really sort of a dark and strange view of the world. Tokyo Year Zero is one I really liked, and he wrote a like a six hundred page book about Manchester United in that <laughs> style called The Damned United, and I don't know like what that would be like. I don't care enough about uh, soccer probably to read it, but the idea of like one of my favorite strangest novelists writing a sprawling book about like the Milwaukee Bucks is very appealing <laughs> to me. And if it were about any other sport, I probably would have read it at this point. The other thing is that uh, Nick Hornby's famous novel, uh, Fever Pitch, was adapted into a movie starring Colin Firth, but it was never released here. I remember it was released in England because I was abroad in England in 1997 when it came out. It was only released here as a remake. Starring, of course, Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore, and they were rooting for the fucking Red Sox, and that was the movie. But the original Fever Pitch movie was true to its source material and was about soccer. So for all I know, it's a good movie, but we were just never allowed to see it here in America. Uh, Andy writes in, Liz. He says, I hate my name. It sucks. Andy. Yes, technically it's Andrew, which is fine, but I'm 42, and I can't tell people, oh, I go by Andrew now. Without sounding like a complete prick, I've gone by Andy since I was a kid. Uh, all my friends will tell me to fuck off if I tell them to call me Drew or Andrew. Plus, when I was younger, my mom said when I was almost either Zachary or Nathan, if you could, would you change your name and what would you change it to? I actually wrote back personally to Andy and said, just go by, tell people to call you Drew or Andrew. And, and even if they give you shit for it, you'll come out the other side and they, they'll respect you if they love you. So that's what I said to him. But... Have you ever had this problem, Liz, with people you know or with yourself not liking your name uh, many, many years into your life? Well, I don't have direct experience for that, but I have thought about this a lot from a similar realm because Elizabeth is ripe for nicknames. And I, I just like settled on one because it was really short and easy to write as a child. And I feel like right. I missed out on all of these opportunities. Like, you know, people go with Betsy, they go with Betty, but like there's some weirder options. There's Zabeth, Zabby. I want to be a Zabby. Really? There's Zabby? Zabby? No, no. I'm just saying like we could invent that. Like there's, oh, there's right. opportunities. I um, thought you were saying like there was someone in Utah who did that. And I was like, there Damn. probably is. Oh, there certainly is. Yeah. Like the lady with the, the dry erase board that has like Michaela and Navy <laughs> written on it. Yes. That person is definitely experimenting with Zabby as we speak. I mean, I By want the way, to. You want... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say, like, I, I want to, to tell Andy the same thing. They're like, yeah, go ahead. Just tell people to call you Drew. But I, I do think that that's going to be a tough sell on the friend group. I think it's easier to pick something that's like completely divorced from your name. Like, it'll be easier to get your friend group to call you Chugs than, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I really am, am very taken by the idea of breaking out a like a like sort of a syllabic portion of a name that you like more than the whole thing and just going from... From Andrew to Andre, like just because you feel like sassing it up and and getting uh you know sort of a, a personal rebrand. Yeah, how, that was like, my name in Spanish. Do that. That was my name in Spanish class, and when I was a kid, so I was like, oh, I get to be Andres for uh, 
for 40 entire minutes until the bell. Yeah. I mean, I, one thing, David, how do you feel about like Viddy? I mean, I feel like we could go in some different directions here. <laughs> I think Viddy would be extremely tight. Uh, like Avi is kind of, that's promising a level of Israeliness that I thankfully cannot deliver. But I think that there is, yeah, there, my name doesn't have as much. I wish it was a little bit longer in that way. The one thing that's weird for me is that like, because David Lee Roth was really famous for the first, I don't know, 20 years of my life, that the David J. Roth thing, which people like professionally will call me that, like that's only my Twitter handle. It's only like an, an initial I've ever used because I need to draw a distinction between myself and the Panama guy. And I don't think that that's necessary anymore. <laughs> I Not because like I got big, but just because he lives in like a weird house in Pasadena now and like nobody really worries about him as much. I thought it was like Screen Actors Guild rules. Like you, you had to choose this and stick with it forever. That may very well be. Yeah, I, if I, this was my, my very limited screen acting experience hasn't really forced that on me. It would be cool. I mean, I feel like if I live in New York for another 10 years, now that they're bringing back Law & Order, I will appear in an episode somehow. But I think that I, I should be able to get by with the J, I guess, in that regard. By the way, if you want weird uh, cultural arcana that only I think about, uh, I remember in Working Girl, Harrison Ford was going to dance with the like, daughter of like a big CEO, and her name was Elizabeth, but he had to fake like he knew her. And so he's like asking around, like, does she go by... Beth or Betsy or Liz and like one of the old ladies goes Bitsy and he's like Bitsy okay all right and then he has to go up and go Bitsy tell me you don't remit tell me you don't remember me and she like plays along but ever since then whenever I think of uh nicknames for Elizabeth I think of Bitsy first because of that fucking scene and I haven't seen Working Girl in like 30 years. So there you go. That's my incredible story, Liz. That's pretty good, though. If you were going to tell a story about the name Bitsy, that you really tied it in. Like, it makes sense. <laughs> Beginning, middle, and end. Do you want to do one more? Let's do it. Yeah, I, I think we should. All right. Uh, uh, Roth, this is from John. I, I'm going to have you answer this one, Roth, yourself. And then we'll, then we'll move on to one that Liz can answer, too. John writes in, how does the New York subway still work during a flood? Why isn't anybody getting electrocuted from the water hitting the third rail? Uh, they put mouse tape on the third rail. So I asked this question in Slack, and everybody was like, because it's insulated, don't worry about it. And I felt so stupid. I mean, like, stupid in a way that I haven't felt since middle school, because part of me, like, they were like, well, you know, power lines don't short out when it rains. And I, I literally was just like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave now. I have to go do something else. And just because I didn't have any answer for that. I was also confused by the question, but I think the answer is the miracle of insulating uh, electrical current. Uh, Will writes in, Liz Cook, at, one point, at what point can you start using undefeated when referring to a team? For example, is it acceptable to call Notre Dame undefeated right now when they're only 3-0 and with wins over bad teams? It's technically true, but it just rubs me the wrong way. As a soccer fan, uh, Liz Cook, how many wins do you get in before you think undefeated can really be used? Oh, I mean, I don't think any wins are even necessary. Like, I think you can use undefeated before the season has begun and uh, wave that banner uh, <laughs> strong and wrong. Um, you know, like, what? Like, like, life is a struggle. We're all just trying to, like, grasp whatever scraps of optimism and happiness we can from this wretched earth. I think, like, why not? Undefeated. I like it. Wow, yeah, like Liz the idea of Lasso just, more luck. Yeah, wow. but like rolling that out there for a team that's got like two wins, no losses, and like nine ties, I would I would latch on to undefeated there as well. I'd just be like, yeah, well, you know, like beat us if you don't think we're good. 
That's like the year uh, when I was a teenager when Michigan went 8-0-3 and, and like finished like 10th in the rankings, but they were they undefeated. three ties? They had three fucking ties under Gary Muller. It was the goddamn thing. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like okay. I'm an undefeated UFC fighter. Yeah. That's true. You are. I, I guess we all are. That is a thousand percent true. I'm going to read one more just to sign us off. Uh, it's from Joe. And Joe writes in, I went to a concert this past weekend for the first time in two years. Outdoor venues, small crowds, vaccine checking at the entry, and I wore my gross gas shirt. Three separate people that <laughs> night came up and asked me, is that you about my shirt? I don't have a question. I just wanted to say there's an honor to be mistaken for David Roth and to apologize to David Roth for being mistaken for me. Let's say, so you know, we sell a shirt that uh, depicts David standing next to a, a, uh, a tank that says gross gas. And he gives the thumbs up. And this person looked like David Roth. So that's such a nice thing. I think, think a lot about. of people kind of look like the, the defector birthday party was full of uh, a lot of people that look kind of like me. I um, absolutely, I mistook like five people for you at that So point. I replied to that, <laughs> which is uh, just a sense of how powerful my brand has become. I replied to that email and I appreciated his kind words, but also made the point that it's absolutely his fault. And anybody who wears that shirt, whatever happens to you while you're wearing it, that's on you, man. Uh, Liz Cook, you've been a fantastic guest. Will you come on again sometime? I would love to. Oh, brilliant. Because Liz Cook, you can find her at Liz Cook KC on Twitter. And her Haterade newsletter, which I subscribe to, is fantastic. She's also a freelance food critic for The Pitch. So read her there as well. Brandon Nix is our producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to Roth and me and Liz Cook this week, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com, too, while you're at it. Next week, uh, Roth, we have to pimp the book. The book's coming out uh, on Who's October book? 12th. Did I write one? No, you didn't write one. You're not. Oh, is it your book, The Night you the let, Lights Went Out? You lack the fortitude. The Night the Lights Went Out comes out October 12th, and we have to figure out a way to celebrate that next week by talking about me all the time. But this week, it was a much greater pleasure to talk to Liz Cook. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Liz. thanks very much. Yeah, stay swell. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.